City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Design Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. Now in the 29th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to explore with the panelists the realities of working in the theatre. This panel is on the stage designers. We will learn how and why these designers became professionals, how they work, how they train, and the reasons for being in the theatre. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's experiences. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. And now, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, the distinguished president of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization and an active member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing, Mr. Theodore Chapin. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Well, carrying on the tradition of distinguished, we have a panel of distinguished designers here today, and I'd like to introduce them to you, starting from my right. Costume designer David Woolard, Robert Jones, costume and set designer, William Ivy Long, costume designer, Tony Walton, costume and scenery designer, Ken Billington, lighting designer, and Thomas Lynch, scenery designer. I'm sure there are some crossovers we'll get to in the conversation. But I thought I'd start by asking the question of when, when you decided to make the theater into your profession, was being a designer and the kind of designer that you are now the focus that you had first? Well, I, I, I jump right in. Jump in. Uh, <laughs> I'm the kid who, in school, turned the lights on and off for the school play. <laughs> but it was the fourth grade play, believe it or not. And I thought it was oh. so cool turning the lights on and off for the fourth grade play, I decided right then and there. I wanted to be a lighting designer. And here we are, a number of years later, I'm doing it, and they pay me now to the lighting designer. <laughs> <laughs> sort, of, sort of. Yeah, sometimes, sort of. So um, I, you know, I just, I don't know why. Did I, I can't design scenery, I can't design costumes. If you saw me sketch, you would all die. So um, I just think uh, I did something, I liked it, and followed it. I remembered recently that I had, as I put something together in a little model that I was doing for, uh, for a play, I, I had the sense memory of being about eight years old and putting a diorama together in a cigar box. I don't know whether I remember doing that for, say, the third grade class. And I was very pleased with my results at age eight <laughs> in, putting, in putting together this, this diorama, which is a little bit what I do now in terms of making space. Um, but then later I thought that I would go on and into uh, architecture and uh, when I was in school uh, in the mid-70s, that seemed like not a great time to be an architect. And I then had, by then, gotten involved in theater and thought, oh, no, this is a lot more fun. So yeah. I stuck with that. That's great. Pretty much the same as Thomas. I thought I'd like to be an architect. And then realized I didn't really want to do that because I, I had toy theaters, model theaters, all that sort of thing that you do as a child. 
and puppets, all those sort of things. And then, but I thought, no, what I really want to be is an architect. I want to design buildings. And then actually what I realised was that I was interested in buildings and architecture, not that I wanted to design them. So, and actually being a designer, that's one of the really good things because we draw upon all those resources all the time. I don't know about, you know, because I'm a set designer as well. I walk around looking at buildings and I constantly have a sort of a mental notebook of things. And then years later, something will arrive and pop up in a set and I realise that I saw it four years before on a building, in a house or, you know, an office or whatever, somewhere else. But being an architect was not a good thing. Pretty similar to what you were right. saying. Right. And one thing about also about architecture, because I didn't work as a, as a scrub boy down in the blueprint room of, a, of an office in college, the point where you start on a project and the point where it's completed is so long. Mm. It's a very, very long process. And with theatre, you get the pleasure of rather fast, if yeah. it's three months or six months or nine months or a year, whatever. It's rather fast uh, But you don't completion. have to get the plumbing right, either. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you can, get really you can get the plumbing wrong oh, right. for a point. <laughs> <laughs> and then if it, no one likes it, it all gets pulled down anyway. So uh, yeah. right. temporary architecture. So did you want to be an actor, really? No, I wanted to be an architect. This is so boring. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I did. I wanted to make. I I, I made uh, earlier than the fourth grade. I made little little houses of tree trunks, tree roots, and trunk and everything. And I would um, make imaginary people. This is very telling, Isabel, about my future life. But I would make up stories and and write plays and. But uh, then I wanted to be an architect, and I went to school for architecture. And then I went to Yale Drama School and studied with Ming Cho Lee when I realized that I couldn't really use the slide rule. <laughs> and that was a setback. And then uh, Ming sort of captivated all of us, and we all wanted to be Ming Cho Lee. And then I came to New York, and uh, I was terrible at it. So I started making frocks, as Tony calls them. <laughs> and sometimes my costumes are so big, I'm told they feel like they're wearing a house. <laughs> they feel like it's architecture. So Architectural costumes. It's sort of back, yeah. back to the architecture there. It is all that, though. I mean, I, I, like Ken, started in school, in elementary school, and just I love the, <coughs> the way that you could create a world, a place, that was from your imagination and just put it out there, and other people would come over and play in it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really great thing to do. And then later on, I debated if I really wanted to do this, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll become a psychologist, and that's actually where I was heading. And costume design really does everything, because you are a psychologist. You are a psychologist, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fitting room, it's not a sofa. That's the only difference. <laughs> it's the classic thing of 25% design, 75% applied psychology. Exactly. It's the, that's Absolutely. the byword, yeah, and it never changes. I just want to give Tony an opportunity to answer oh, that, and then we'll go on. I wish I had gone in in as logical a way as everybody here <laughs> had. But I was planning to be a doctor. My dad was a surgeon, and I just assumed that was where I was headed. And um, the medically related subjects were the ones I did least well in <laughs> at school. So I got shifted to a classics remove, in which I was even worse. So uh, to get me out of the way, the classics teacher sent me off to an art school in Oxford, and um, why he sent me, I have really no idea. I think I did the debating society posters, but I hadn't done much <laughs> else. Uh, anyway, after I went to the art school, neither the art school nor the college was ever quite sure w where I was. If I wasn't one, I was just assumed to be at the other. So I had some spare time, and I put on some marionette shows. Like Bob. <laughs> and yeah. uh, they became starting out with um, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, and then through finally... The, my big item was Mozart's magic flute. Mm -hmm. 
about the size of this poster <laughs> in the band. <laughs> and of course, on that scale, you can do pretty fancy lighting, as you can tell. <laughs> and I was doing the building the marionettes and making the costumes and doing the scenery and singing the part of Papageno. A fine artist, a very fine, fine artist called John Piper, who is an oh, English, very distinguished artist, who had done the sets and costumes for, I think, all but one of the Benjamin Britten operas. Um, happened to be at one of these performances of Magic Flute and Marionettes. And he, came, he looked like a medieval figure. He was gaunt, very impressive. And he came backstage and said, which one is Walton? And I went, <laughs> and he said, you should do this. And I said, what is this? <laughs> 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 and it turned out he was um, a visiting teacher at the Slade School of Fine Art in London, and so he sent me there. And to kind of pay my way there, I became an assistant designer at Wimbledon Repertory Theatre, just near the tennis courts. And um, that the, the two experiences were so completely opposite that that was, in a way, the best education I ever had. The Slade School was totally idealistic, didn't even teach you how to do a ground plan or stitch anything. Uh, and the Wimbledon Repertory Theatre was banging the same old bits of scenery into new shapes and slapping a different color, color on every week. So um, trying to mesh those two experiences was the best education I got, I think. If you, if you couldn't paint it, you didn't design it. That's right. So <laughs> exactly. yeah. Yeah. It's interesting mm -hmm. that the, the whole notion of the imagination and how do you take the imagination that you all obviously expressed in an early age and, uh, and translate some craft into mm -hmm. it. What kind of training did you have? I and mean, wh when did the dioramas become uh, drafted? Or I had, uh, in terms of the dioramas, I actually spent a great deal of time uh, in my adole childhood, adolescence, and then finally in college, uh, drawing and painting. It was, I did a double major in college, and painting was one of them. And uh, that uh, training and vi visualization and in, in being able to put on paper either something that was in my mind or something that I was simply looking at and being very careful about how to get that clearly on paper or on canvas. Um, or on the etching plate, which I happen to like. Weirdly enough, I happen to like the process of etching. I don't know why. Printmaking was a very good favorite of mine. You have to do it backwards, right? You have to do it backwards, and it's labor-intensive, and it's very technical. And actually, it might be the technical side of that which appeals to my technical nature as well. In any case, <clears throat> I had spent a good deal of time uh, honing those visual skills of visual representation. Um, I had also, like I said, I had been quite serious about architecture and had spent time working in an office. And it wasn't just blueprinting, it was doing model building and so forth. So I had learned some actual skills there and I had begun to see how you transfer form of ground plan and elevation, section, all of those things that seem sort of boring, how those get put together into form and what that form might mean. Uh, with that, that did go pretty far into design for the theater. Uh, only on the visual side. That had really nothing to do with the storytelling side, which was another one of my interests, um, 
which was uh, literature, and that was that I had spent also uh, in college. My other major was an English major, and that had to do a lot with interest in, in basically, in stories. And um, well, you're all part of telling stories, so that's, that's right. obviously mm -hmm. a very, yeah. very important. Yeah, and that thing. storytelling and how to do that on stage in in um, spaces. I always say that my design often one design to another isn't particularly recognizable. <coughs> There's not a Tom Lynch uh, um, style particularly because I always feel like whatever I do is supporting. Uh, w what the writer's trying to do. So uh, what I feel like I'm trying to do is make a context, an emotional context for whatever story it is. And whether it's one set where something happens or whether it's many sets that have to transfer through space and time, it's about supporting the story. And uh, so it was, it was a marriage of those two things for me. I think for all of us, that's probably exactly how it's gone. Do any of you feel that, that there is a William Ivey style or a <coughs> David Woolard style? Or? I think there is a style. I know we all say we don't want to be pigeonholed. We don't think we have a style, but I think we do. Because I, I, I find again and again, I set out to do a design, and exactly what Tom's saying, I totally agree. And then by the end of it, if I were to put, say, six or seven designs in a line and look at them, there's always a little line that runs through. Even though we don't like to say we've got a style, I think we all do. Well, really the harder you try to avoid yeah. having a style, the more your limitations kind of force one on you. It's <laughs> <laughs> whatever your drawbacks are end up being what your style inevitably well, turns up. People assume William has a style. They assume I have a <laughs> style. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... I don't know if this is just going to encourage him, but John <laughs> Simon went for You know how we memorize our bad reviews? Right. Oh, yeah. And no. you do that? Oh, yeah. You're not I supposed to read them. them. I do read them. Every one of them, I memorize them. Like, <laughs> read them backwards. I etch them. <laughs> uh, uh, he once wrote, and this was years ago, and I have never disappointed him, I think. He said, William Ivy Long uh, hovers. Uh, his w the costumes by William Ivey hover between taste and travesty, <laughs> and I think that can be on my tombstone. Yes. <laughs> everything hovers between ta taste. So that's the style. It hovers between taste and travesty. <laughs> Other than that, I don't think so. But I like a certain red. Tony and I fight over the color red all the time. <laughs> Mine is a blue red. Tony's is. Well, then it's always red. my problem to make it look yeah. like the red. That the you yeah. 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 held so out in the sunlight yeah. and the so lighting you can tell changing. Who, who's connected with the show, because Tony has a red knife. But to be fair, for example, in Six Degrees of Separation at Lincoln Center, um, Greg Mosher, who was then in command, said William would probably not be appropriate on the account on account of his uh, taste versus travesty <laughs> tendencies. And uh, these were all supposed to be real people in real clothes and not costumes. and. Uh, we all said, but William can do that. And they all said, no, no. And he indeed proved he so could Tony and frequently does, me. yes. Uh, well, you know, I, I was coming with style. I, we all work all over the place, you know. Uh, but we all do Broadway shows. We do off-Broadway shows. Um, opera. Uh, Tony does film. Um, I do television, spectaculars, Las Vegas acts. And they are all so wildly different. Um, you know, making Shirley MacLaine look good on the stage of Caesar's Palace is very different than um, trying to do Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway or making the Rockettes do something. So uh, that makes us work harder to come up with a style for where we're working. And it's always 
it makes me think a lot. I, there's nothing that comes easy. And I just can't say, oh, I know how to do this. I do know how to do it, but you stop and say, well, wait a minute, I have to deal with the blonde hair on this person for backlight. And so it's the style has to change, I think, for where you're working, even though we all do have a style. It's contradicted everything. I want to talk a little bit about collaboration because part of what, what's going on here is the sort of the, the, the sense of collaboration. And there are members of this panel who have worked together from time to time. I've worked with all of them. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's, he's the class. There may be one, uh, just one thing to add yeah. about style, which is because of what tends to get reproduced, you see designs for the theater by Chagall or Picasso, or famous painters who have worked in the theater. And they, of course, design in the style of Chagall or Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a kind of a Which is why they're asked to do those right. particular mm -hmm. pieces. Mm -hmm. right. um, and so people assume that that's kind of a necessary part of what we do. But I think you'll have gathered from all of us, at least, that it's the last thing we want of ourselves. We want to try to be the eyes of the author, if we can, via the sensibility of the director. And sometimes, even though we're all visual people, I know in, in my case, in order to uh, try and avoid my own personal taste or style leaking in too strongly, I try initially to read the script as if it's a radio play. I try to keep all imagery out until I have a chance to meet with the director or the author or both. Um, because if you have a rush of images and they don't happen to jibe, with the image that your director may have, then it's sometimes harder to let go of something you fell in love with when you first read the script than it is to just wait and let whatever the director and or, or Tony, along the same line, if you come in too strong in a first or second meeting with a director with a, with a visual idea, the director may be so cowed by, oh my goodness, yes. Tony Walton, has, who's so fabulous at visualizing things, may have this idea, and of course I have to go with that, and he's not thinking quite yeah, right. clearly enough yet on <laughs> his own about the visual, yeah. and he will sort of accede to that and then find that there are problems yeah. with what he wants to do and then you're in a little bit of a That's mess. True. It's a very slow process and you have to give the trying you to have slowly to give come towards the room same for that, right? Have you had I, it's only happened to me twice in my career but where I met with the director and the author and was so totally opposite from what they were mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. I didn't take the job yes. mm -hmm. yeah. because I just said I probably could have done it, but it was just so against yeah, so what I, I thought the play was about. Yeah. 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 You know, I can't, I can't. Yeah. But and and a, a, a good clue is their body language. You should, in the meeting, you know, I mean, <coughs> we, we costume designers, of course, live on body language, or we should, <laughs> and <laughs> the language of everything. <laughs> and I, I, some meetings just become, you can watch that they react to you and they end up sort of falling, <laughs> sort of like this and <laughs> take their glasses down. <laughs> Anything but dealing with you, because they can tell they hate you. <laughs> and the same thing is, as I watch myself contort to them. And, that's usually a good rule of thumb. <laughs> if you're contorted totally at the end of the meeting, <laughs> you, you know you should go away from that. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never going to watch your yeah. contortions and watch yeah. their contortions. But, but I imagine par part of the fun would be if you have an idea that is different than the director's, you want to win the director over to your idea. Uh, who, I, I, life is too short. That's about collaboration as well, yeah, because I think that we bring, I mean, as far as style and whatnot goes, I mean, we all have our own histories that we, no matter what, we're going to bring. To the table, yeah. and in 
Not that you want to, as Tom is saying, you know, plow them over with this idea of yours, but you also do want to bring something informative so that you can be a part of the growing nature of that or the collaboration of that rather than just it's going to be this is what we're going to do, I feel. Uh, it's similar for an actor, though, really. What is, how much of this is me and how mm -hmm. much of this is not me? And, and it's, we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to find what is special about this particular creature that we're working on and the things that appear to work best are the ones where you can hardly figure out who came exactly. up with what. It's the classic yeah. question, and, mm. and people often ask the question of a designer, who came up with that idea? Yeah. And when you can say, I don't know, I always think that's a really good sign yeah. of right. collaboration. Yes. Yeah. What, what I, I think that's a good answer. Politically, a good answer. Yeah, yeah but well, I, don't know. I think it was the director. But often, I don't know if a lot of our audience, we, we work on new projects all the time, and when we get the script, there is no ground plan in the back of it. There are no, and sometimes there is not even description other than there's a door up center and a <laughs> staircase. And we, not so much me because I do lights, but we have to conceive what the space is going to be, what it's going to look like. Then it's published that way. And when it's done in community theater colleges around the world, they always sort of open the script to the back and look at the picture <laughs> and the ground plan and say, oh, there's a door down right. And the door down right might be the simple reason that was the only way to get to the dressing rooms in that theater. Yeah. Um, yeah. The it's also interesting, sorry, that, that uh, the descri scenic descriptions, and maybe the costume descriptions, I'm not sure, in, say, the French's acting editions, are generally speaking not written by the author. They're usually written by the production stage manager uh, for the show in between after the after fact. After the fact. Yeah. Uh, they just describe what mm -hmm. the production looked like. And that's in, I've worked a few times with David Rabe, who has never put a stage direction of any sort in his script, first scripts. But by the time they're published, there's a full description of the environment. And it's, and it's also pretty interesting with musicals where it's not one environment but many between <coughs> whatever it is, 5, 10, 15, 20 yeah. places, and how you get from <coughs> one to another. By the time that's published, it seems in the published form mm. as if there's a very logical way that those have yeah. gone. Mm -hmm. Those, of course, reflect how that original production ended up after yeah. a lot of <laughs> angst torture. and struggle and torture. Script thinking, oh, well, they've just designed it along, you know. Right. Well, right. It's when they're staging it and they don't exactly. have any scene change music and they yeah. say, how did they get from scene one <laughs> to scene two? Well, mm -hmm. the lights went from left to right or whatever it was, but it's... Uh, well, the crazy, crazy example is um, reading the first draft of uh, Six Degrees of Separation <coughs> that Tony and I worked on. And uh, it was written as a screenplay, and of course it was later turned into a film. And there was no place, remember, no time, no place, no time of day. And Tony and... Well, uh, there were a lot of descriptions uh, within the dialogue. Of where there were, I think, as I remember, there were about 35 requirements of different places, a living room, a bedroom, a but kitchen, like that, and that, that. central park. And you, you thought, wait a minute. So Tony and Jerry worked that out and tried to, and a lot of it was still worked out in the, um, in the rehearsal, yes. like when people yes. would just mm -hmm. all of a sudden stand up in the audience yes. and mm -hmm. start talking, because that was not a place, that was sort of a right. tangential. Well, that was kind of just one of those lucky events that um, 
as William said, th there were all these different locations, and we feared that we'd be sitting there all night waiting for the <laughs> kitchen to come <laughs> <laughs> trucking on. And the tree and gobo and to the come tree up. Yes. <laughs> um, and I had many sleepless nights about it, and then finally asked Jerry if we could just start with nothing. Yeah, just he could just see what can you not do without. And he, see, he said, I all I know is I need a place to sit down. <laughs> so <laughs> we started with one sofa. And we didn't get much beyond that. We no, ended up with two, two sofas. Two <laughs> <laughs> that was and that. a kind of a red circus ring stage. Um, and one of the problems was what are we going to do about entrances and exits? And I'd just been working on um, Tommy Tune's production of Grand Hotel. And in the rehearsal period of that, the, which was done in a derelict old ballroom just off Broadway, the cast sat around the stage in, on benches until the moment came for them to uh, become involved in the action. And it was very interesting because you could also see them watching the other actors before they came in to take, their, take on their own scene. Um, so just because I'd been watching that, I said to Jerry, what about if we do that? How, how about if the all of our cast sit in the front row or the front two rows of the theatre and they have programmes as if they're members of the audience. And, uh, as I remember it, he and John Gwebb were horrified at this <laughs> idea. But because Jerry's a fine director, he, um, he woke me up in the middle of the night a few nights later and uh, said, I got it! <laughs> I can just see the detective stand up and say, do you want to press charges? And if they say no, he can sit right down. He doesn't have to get, even get on the stage. And of course then he took that and ran with it. Um, but sometimes the physical nature of a production can come from something as peculiar as that. We need to move like an express train. How can we get the actors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be in the action at the speed of light? Uh, there's no time for them to open a door. So that was where we started on that production. But that's a wonderfully trusting story of two people. I mean, you know, a director and a designer who obviously are willing to listen to each yes. other. So you yeah. were pushing mm -hmm. each other. And they really yes. did just mm -hmm. start without a finished plan. Yeah. That yeah. was mm -hmm. what extraordinary to me. Yeah. So I just started making collages, thinking, well, on this page is something we'll use, maybe. Well, one of the things <laughs> that was kind of interesting in terms of the collaboration is I said, the only thing I sort of know, and this is only a gut feeling, is that this is all happening out of red, that the circus ring is a very, very powerful red. And, um, and William went, oh, my God, as he usually <laughs> does yeah, whenever we started. But <laughs> 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 what am I going to do? What can I possibly use? So, yeah. <laughs> so your reds work together? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they have an attack when they meet each other. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a big piece of carpet of this particular red, and the lighting designer, Paul Gallagher, joined us. This is before rehearsals had started. And we, we went to one of the theaters that we were working in and laid the carpet down and put different color lights different. on and William just threw I fabrics. Just, uh, threw fabrics. Oh, it, it, ah! Uh, oh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> also, there was a painting mentioned in the, in the, um, the script that was a, a Kandinsky. And so... Two si double-sided. Double-sided. Double famous now. Mm -hmm. Yes, double-sided Kandinsky. And I sort of took sort of, uh, in the end, when in doubt, go back to the Kandinsky and pull yes. a color out. Because yeah. it's well. pretty much worked. Mm -hmm. When you design uh, a set for the theater, do you design it for a large theater or a small theater? Do you have to, before it goes in, decide what size theater that you're going into? Ideally, you have to know, but many times you don't, and that's very tough. And what happens with the costumes? 
difference in a large theater or a small theater? Uh, uh, sometimes it's, well, you're really designing for where the director is sitting in the 10th row. <laughs> <laughs> and the level of detail, I think, these days, uh, we've, the cinema, is, is a, there's a, a symbiotic relationship between films and, and the stage that's creeping in more and more, I think. And so the more real a detail that the director and playwright can see, uh, it used to be that for a big really house, you'd the bar put a big has been raised on that. Right around here, hmm? the bar really has been raised on that about what we're seeing as real, and we're seeing yes. it. We're seeing. We're needing to see real. More Our real eyes are needing to see real. Even I started out, right? And because you could put like a nice piece of black rickrack around here, and mm. you'd see that collar better if it was a big old house. So um, I think the same but is true with props different. as mm -hmm. well. Yes. Don't you find yeah. that, mm -hmm. Tony? That any kind of prop you have on stage, you can't have just any old chair or just any old ashtray or just any old tiny little piece of something. We've gotten so attuned to looking rather closely at exactly what that is mm -hmm. that it has to be quite exact. And also, funnily enough, actors have become more and more and more mm -hmm. demanding. Yeah, they won't work with a part exactly. Even if we can't yeah. see yeah. it, the audience, the actor yes. has a very real need. And I respect that. It's their work. Mm -hmm. They have a very real need to have the thing. Mm -hmm very telling to them in the moment yeah. as well. Why and do you think that's happening? More and more they want it, sorry. No. I was saying more and more they need it in the rehearsal room. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, think I think it's because of their TV. I think it's because of their That's the problem. You, know, exactly. you, can, you can rehearse for six weeks on not quite the right furniture and you get and into the And then it throws them off the right. And you always go back to some tatty old sofa that they've had yeah, in the rehearsal room and recover it and make it work. I think that it's because of the both their TV and movie work yeah. where they're so used to having the Touching very everything the very yeah. and it's thing. very important and it's very it's very very important but then there's also that comfort level that the actors like bb newworth we did uh, chicago and bb's we every time she comes back to the show which gloriously she does from <laughs> time to time we drag out this same old chair that she did that chair <laughs> ballet with and it was spray painted in the alley and it's worn off in the center, so you see the brown. And every time people go, oh, well, can't you? No, she won't have it touched, <laughs> apart from the superstition. Yeah. But that's literally the first rehearsal chair that she used. And so some of that comes from the director. I mean, that was Fosse, and uh, as you know, worked a lot with Fosse. And he, particularly in film, but sometimes in theater too, was very insistent, having been a performer himself, that everything that you provide for the performer should be supportive mm. of what they need to be thinking at any given moment. If they open a drawer and there's a piece of mail in there, or it has to be a piece of mail addressed to that character with a mm -hmm, message mm -hmm. that would be appropriate. Nobody, of course, can see it except mm -hmm. for the actor, but it was crucial to him that you took that kind of detail. And in some instances, and I, I don't know if you do the same thing, but in movies, I do try to do things that will make an actor feel something about the nature of his role. For example, Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express as uh, Inspector Poirot. Um, I had a, not only monogrammed cufflinks and cane, but um, I made him a, r a ring out of a bullet casing because he was supposedly injured in the hip in the First World War and this was a reminder that he should limp. Because the ring, if you make it <laughs> out of the great. brass bullet casing, mm, right, it leaves right. a rather nasty little green right. <laughs> ring. Yeah, <laughs> so great. he was always conscious that he was wounded. When he was well, our <laughs> colleague, Santo Lacosta, who's not with us at the moment, but I'll tell a good 
little tale on him. He always, when there's a hallway leading to the stage, I know most of you probably do this too, but I always see, go backstage to see Sandro's sets because once you get mm -hmm. near the stage, he starts the carpeting, so you mm -hmm. can feel that feel. And yeah. there are pictures on the wall that mm -hmm. only the actors can see. And of course, that's just delight, delicious yeah. for them. Yeah. They mm -hmm. love that. Um, you know, going back to what you were saying about uh, size of the uh, theater, in the world of lighting, the bigger the room, the brighter the lighting. So in a small 99-seat theater, you can put a light at a very low level and everybody can see everything. If I did that in a Broadway theater, nobody would see anything. And then you get into the 2,000-seat theaters, I'd be fired. So um, even though it may be the same play in the same surroundings, the lighting just keeps going up and up and up and brighter. So um, I know when we work at Radio City, when we do the shows there, the production table where we light the show from is in the 10th row. Uh, and the director's always saying, well, make it a little bit darker. And I always get the director up, walk them a half a city mm -hmm. block mm -hmm. back, mm -hmm. and say, there are 3,000 people sitting behind us. Mm -hmm. And you'll say, oh, it's not bright enough. <laughs> so you have to be uh, very aware of, um, I do at least, of the size of the venues you're playing. Now, has, well, it, ha no, has it been lighting designers who have caused Broadway theaters to hang trusses? No, because there, there are now many, you know, you look at the beautiful the ornate. The front of you know, know what it is? It's the public. public. Number it's one it's uh, the public. If, if you look yes. back at Joe Melziner's original light plot from Guys and Dolls, out front, total out front, there were 24 500 watt lights lighting all of Guys and Dolls and three follow spots. From the front? From, from the, the front, front of the front house. In front of the proscenium. On a typical musical now, 250 lights out front would, uh, mm -hmm. there are 575, but the lights have been redesigned. But that many lights, plus the three follow spots, and I still get notes that it isn't bright enough. Mm -hmm. And the audience, it goes, it goes right into sound. Mm -hmm. I think um, I television say, or concerts and and our awareness of the world around us has changed. Um, before we had television and when, before we had concerts, people would go to the theater and they would accept that. Now they won't. They're used to, if you watch a television show, the old Ed Sullivan show from the uh, 50s, they rarely did a camera cut. You know, you'd see somebody doing whatever they were doing and the camera stayed on them. Now you watch a variety show today, there's 20 cuts in that one song. Um, it's the same thing I think that has happened to us, mm. is we've just had to compensate uh, for the audience not seeing as well. And or hearing as well. And not hearing as and well. Not, and they not always wanting to work quite as hard. Not work right. as hard. I mean, it's always, people laugh, you know, if, if you can't see it, you can't hear it. And though we laugh at that. I think it's, it's true. true. I think it's true. I'm always, it's really bad when you're doing a flop comedy. When yes. the comedy, when nobody's laughing at the <laughs> bad jokes, the lighting just gets brighter. And the sound goes up and up. And change the dress. Change the dress <laughs> and then the yeah. sofa. How many sofas have you seen? Sofas. And then the toilet flushes. When you hear toilet flushes, you know it's a flop. But do you anticipate that? Do you just like eat the lights up? You start down here because you know that. You've got to Two get weeks from now, you're going to be up there. So yeah. if you start there, you don't have any place to go. Is it fair to say that something else that has happened, though, is that m many more productions now 
are thrust out into the audience to some degree, so you literally cannot light them from behind the proscenium. Right. So you need more equipment out front just to get people out on the floor. Everyone stage. wants to see a film. They come right, to the exactly. theater and want to see a movie. It's a movie mentality. And they want everything to move quickly, quickly. Get that clothes on. Da, 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 da. What do you mean it takes a minute to change? You know, seconds, seconds, seconds. And, that has and the scenery has to dance. And that has to do with plays as well as mm -hmm. musicals. Oh, most yes. mm -hmm. everything yeah. has most to be new a film. plays cut that in, I get. Out. And we all get new plays all the time. It's very rare that I get a new play uh, that is a single set play. Whenever I do, I go, hallelujah, here's a single <laughs> set play. Here's a room. Yeah. Normally, it's many, many places. And it's because our writers are, I think, they very... They like TV and movies. Mm -hmm. They're, they they're very, very um, accustomed to telling a story in through many locations and having their characters move through many locations. And there, therefore, we need to see many locations. Um, the, 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 um, I was going to say, <laughs> it's slightly <laughs> our fault in being so clever well, that no, we can I mean actually, encourage it. that yeah. we can actually do it, yeah. that the, when the, that we can actually go through the gyrations to make that happen. Yeah. For instance, with six degrees, ma making all of those needs evaporate was a very, very good thing because it meant that we could focus on that story. Right. Um, Another uh, example of something from around that same time that I did was Wendy Wasserstein's Heidi Chronicles, which was, I think, 14 non-repeating locations. And the, uh, that story really had each of the scenes within that story just went right there, stayed there for seven minutes, went to the next one, stayed for 10 minutes, went to the next, stayed for six minutes. And they really had to be in those locations or they didn't make sense. So the need to get to those locations was, was extreme. And we got there by a lot of stagecraft. And the costume changes, <laughs> you know, I remember Joan Allen having to do a costume change in something like 30 seconds on a moving platform that was moving at five feet a second and a screen was coming in and projections were happening. And then 15 seconds later, there she was in a new costume. And the poor girl, you thought, wait a minute, is this, talk, too, is this acting? Yeah. Right, is this acting or is it a trapeze act? Yes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's pushing the actor as well as the designers to a point you kind of question finally. But it is also uh, some, it's a kind of liberation that's happened for the playwrights that they don't feel obliged to, to go for unity. To go for a single setting, yeah. And it's produced, Six Degrees is a good example, it's, it's produced very imaginative ways of playing. But don't you think right. dramaturgs could very clearly explain the difference in the musical being done today and say Guys and Dolls, where they were in one production mm -hmm. numbers so mm -hmm. that the, the drop could come in and they could change the scenery. Mm -hmm. And then it would go up, then there'd be a full stage number, and then drop mm -hmm. down. And, and that's the way the play was, I mean, the musical was written. Mm -hmm. And Not now anymore. they're written with Seamlessly. all mm -hmm. yes. possible. Yes. So I think on the um, original, that could be traced. Uh, original New York production of Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing, Mike Nichols, who directed it, was very keen that it shouldn't, the, the, the London production was somewhat stylized, a lot of black screens. And uh, Mike felt that the New York audience needed to know more about these British characters and they need, therefore their environment needed to tell us more about them. So there were a large number of scene changes, I think it was about 11. Um, and he said, the only, the only <laughs> <laughs> caution I have to give you 
is that none of these are in one. They're all full sets. And, and I don't want to wait more than four seconds <laughs> between each <laughs> <them. laughs> So we had a lot of things revolving. And but, 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 but you solved it. But, but, finally, finally, but Tony, it was, but that was actually, th what is odd about that, it was rather, th it, that was thrilling. Oh, Your right. results were thrilling. And it worked very well. And uh, also with Wendy's play, finally, what yeah. was there on stage, it worked. It, the play, I think, was served very, very well. And the writing, I think, was served very, very well. Yes. So it's but you do feel that thing for the actor. Where these, all these things mm -hmm. are turning and twisting. And we had one actor, Ken Welch, who just forever went through the walls. Trying to find right. himself in the right room. Right. So, so you Tough see th them. these, these as, mm. as things that, that inspire your, your imagination They're to challenges. come up with this. Mm. Yeah. They're challenges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, we love solving them. Susan Stroman is always throwing dresses at me that have to change mid-dance into another dress. Or, uh, or William, and, and William and I are doing a show right now called Thou Shalt Not. And one of the things that William has had happen is that there's an entire wig change, like in a second on stage that we don't see. That you don't see. She ages. <laughs> she has a stroke. Poor Deb. Martin. And within, <laughs> and within, and within a second, and we don't see it. An entire. She's completely changed. I yeah. still haven't figured out how. I'm not going to tell you. It's not good. It's not done with lighting. It's for the book. I wanted to, to, to ask about um, wh when you, as a designer, create something that is completely fanciful, that is your, I mean, I obviously, you talked about the architecture inspiring and set and stuff like that. Because I confess that the, the first set that I ever saw that just blew me away as something that was a complete world of its, uh, of its own was the original production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And I remember saying mm -hmm. to Tony, you know, there's something weird about this because it's sort of a street and yet there's <coughs> nothing and the buildings don't look right. They all look like they're sort of wrong and <laughs> the costumes are sort of mohair but they sort of look like a t they don't know <laughs> what they are. And I suddenly I was absolutely captivated because it all seemed like a world of complete fantasy. Um, is that something which is fun to do? Do you get opportunities to do that or is that, was that a one shot? <laughs> well, it was a bit, it was a sort of a it came about through my getting peculiarly scrambled uh, because the original director was Jerry Robbins and then he left in pre-production and George Abbott came in just very shortly before rehearsals. Um, but he had been planning to go on vacation. So I met him in order <laughs> to just be interviewed and, and he accepted me for the job. And then I said, w w should I send you things or can I bring you stuff down to Florida? He was going to Florida to golf and dance. He was very big on, as you probably know, <laughs> ballroom dancing. And he said, no, no, I'm going to be on my vacation. I said, well, could I send you stuff to get some feedback? He said, no, no, it's my vacation. He was 70 then. Um, I thought the oldest person I ever expected to work with, and as probably most of you know, at 105 he was still working <laughs> at the opening night of uh, Damn Yankees when a journalist said, what, what's been the biggest change in the theatre since you started out? He said, oh, electricity, I think. At any rate, he had been at, it, been at it long enough to know that he didn't want to waste a lot of time with his designer. And uh, <laughs> so I, I didn't really have anybody to speak to. And I said, well, when will you see this? He said, I'll see it on the first day of rehearsal when the rest of the company does. It'll be good for me. <laughs> I, I like a lot of emphasis <laughs> in the record. <laughs> so I asked Hal Prince about it. He was the producer. And he said, I know you're kind of on your own. And <laughs> so I just tried to imagine. I'd been going a certain route with Jerry Robbins. And then I tried to imagine what the kind of baggy pants um, George Abbott version might be like. But it was my first Broadway musical. I'd done a couple off-Broadway, but this was my first sort of big chance. 
So I thought I would be stupid not to put in at least the seven hills of Rome and everything else that would really make an impression. Um, so on one hand, I was doing this little sloppy cardboard knockabout burlesque thing, which I thought would be right for Abbott. And on the other, I was making this, what to me, rather impressive <laughs> mini model with all these little buildings and uh, just strictly to impress. <laughs> and because Abbott wasn't available, I asked Mike Nichols, who was then w in Nichols and May on Broadway, an evening with Mike Nichols and May, whatever it was, um, because he was clearly the kind of guiding force of their extraordinary routines. And he came and he looked at these two things for the longest time. I was just in agony. He didn't say anything for the longest time. Um, and he kept going back to this very detailed one. And then he would just quickly look at the, this little rubbishy thing. And then finally he got up and he walked over to the rubbishy thing. And he said, you know, that doesn't remind me of anything. I bet that's right. <laughs> 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 and sometimes that is a really good signal. If you know, if you sort of discover en route, that what you're doing doesn't particularly remind you of anything you've done before or anybody else has done, then maybe it just belongs to this particular piece. And that's very lucky if, you, if that happens. Did, did you have a similar <coughs> circumstance when you took over Susical? There's a world that had to be created. Aren't you evil? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you are yes, so I am. mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, Next subject. I, I, we should pass on that. Okay. <laughs> okay. David. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put me right after. <laughs> <laughs> right after the mention of Susan. You know, as, as Tony was saying about uh, working with the di directors, uh, I've done a, a great number of shows with Hal Prince, and Hal Prince totally lets his designers go forward. He, he'll throw some ideas out. I know when we did Sweeney Todd, he threw his, uh, Eugene and I a picture of light coming through windows at Penn Station. He said, oh, go think about this, guys. And out of that came the set for Sweeney Todd. He knows what he needs and if there's any specifics, but it, it's always, I always find that sort of thrilling that they will take it, and then there's many meetings after that and you go through all that, but that first impression that he says, that's why he hired us, is to come up with some very clear ideas and our concept of the shows. And um, that has always been sort of thrilling. He also I says it's hard for him to work mm -hmm. on the material itself until he has the visual metaphor for the show. That whatever the designers bring him gives him his sense of direction on what, you know, how, to whatever degree he may have shaped that himself. It gives him something to start working on for the, the piece itself. How broad can those metaphors be? I mean, I know that, that Bells Are Ringing was clearly television, 50s television, right. which is kind of, you know, that's sort of what you're talking about. Here, here it is. But how broad, uh, I mean, a category, can it, be an can it be an artist? You said earlier that Chagall, can, can, is that, can that be one of those metaphors or is that something else? It's so tricky because they still want to have buttons if you see them buttoning, and they still <laughs> want to have, you know, shoes. And for clothing, the l you get really caught in those metaphors. <laughs> Damn you for this. It's a little thing. bit like that. You really get yes, caught. Yes, William, you're right. The stronger it's a little bit different for scenery because you can be broader with a metaphorical space. 
or a metaphorical idea that human beings, and we still think they might be human beings in those clothes with the buttons, you can, can also exist be in. reductive, which you can't be that much with costume with clothes. With costume clothes, you can't be. You can at your peril. You can't actually do it. It, it can't be done. The closer it gets to your mouth, the more realistic it has to be. That's right. Right around here, I think. And with scenery, you actually can be reductive or minimalist or even go slightly counter to what's happening with costumes. But the more that happens, the more we focus down onto the actor and the, and the, the character. Mm -hmm. right. Everyone starts homing in on all that detail, so it's over to the and costume designer. you get notes about that. Exactly. exactly. Is it fair to say that there is still a bit of a difference, though, between stage costumes and movie costumes in that? Less and less, I but feel. But you don't in that for a movie, you are very seldom aware of the full silhouette. You're much more conscious exactly. of that. Exactly. But you, do, you can, in the theater, tell something about a character with the full well, you get, silhouette. Well, you get the whole, the whole game. You have yeah. the shoes, the socks, all the way up to the hat, mm -hmm. and, the, and the, the perfume. The shoes are very few and far between on yes. film. <laughs> <laughs> you always like to wear their old scuffy things until Absolutely. they know that they're going to be in the shot. Yes, right. that's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Of all the craftsmen that are here, the better you do your job, the least it's seen by the audience. You hope. And yeah. I think yeah. that's very interesting. I, Lillian just said that she stopped working on the stage when they stopped having <laughs> footlights. <laughs> she said that was the only way to really light a person from the mm -hmm. ground up. Do you still feel that way? I, I use footlights I all footlights. the time. Mm -hmm. Isn't that and I'm, I'm one of the few designers right. that uses them all the time. Um, even on Chicago, I have my yeah, yes, yeah, like four shows out now with footlights. Um, they're great for besides making actors look good. They're good for make, make, They're great for making the scenery look good. If you have a painted show, if you have. Uh, but they also bring the energy and to and the performance. Like, and it warms the actor. Literally, their curtain. How do you warms. how do you use footlights? You say you still do. Um, I, I use them. I, I put them uh, usually always. I mean, here we go with style. Uh, in the same three colors: pink, <laughs> lavender, and blue. Um, because the pink can make the ladies look lovely. Uh, the lavender can probably make the scenery look good, and the blue in case you get into trouble. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and they work. I know when I used to work with Mary Martin a lot, and uh, the first show I did with her, uh, she walked on stage, and as she made her entrance, the footlights came up. And she walked on stage, walked dead center, and looked at me and said, thank you, Ken. And she knew that footlights, they erase a lot of shadows under yes. the chin. Um, sometimes they're good for making people not fall off the edge of the stage, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not a... I think there's yeah. even more than that. <laughs> that is true, and they do make the scenery, they do help the scenery. Like they take mm -hmm. a lot of wrinkles out of yes. a lot of drums. Mm -hmm. But they, there's also Drop a relationship chins. between the audience and what's happening on stage that that footlight look is, is so kind of theatery. Yeah, and right. mm -hmm. you think, oh my god, I'm in a theater now. Yeah. I'm not just mm -hmm. in a place with some old light hanging around. It feels very uh, warm. It usually makes it. for an yeah. inviting moment. Sane. And Sorry. it is actually a very useful uh, old convention. That I love doing curtain warmers, which is what you see when you walk into the theater, of you putting footlights in. And I have done it on a few shows where that's all they're used for, in fact, is the curtain warmers. We have footlights for the curtain warmers because it's that isn't that what we think curtains look right. like? Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
And if you can make the people look good, that's even Is this better. something you've brought back? Did, it go, did they go out of fashion entirely? Well, they they go any Absolutely. new performing arts center, they, well, when you want to put footlights on, they have to start drilling into their beautiful concrete front <laughs> of the stage. But so it was also as the stage began to thrust uh, out, out more, you if you put footlights, members of the audience are looking into the footlights. Uh, in fact, actually, I worked with Lillian Gish on, in 1972, I think, on Uncle Vanya, Mm -hmm. uh, in which, because it was in the circle in the square, there couldn't be any footlights. And she was a little unhappy about it, mm -hmm. as I say. Right. She was also unhappy that she wasn't playing Eliana in her <laughs> 20 <laughs> 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 And she had a wonderfully selective memory, I must say, in the, the <laughs> when she came to her first costume oh, fitting. She said, um, this is going to be very strange for me, because, you see, I've always designed my own costumes. No, no, wait, wait. Not in Birth of a Nation. My mother designed that. <laughs> 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 and you know, we also have to deal with those personalities. I remember when I worked with Ethel Merman. <laughs> Ethel Merman had in her contract the color pink that had to be in the follow spot mm -hmm. to make her look good. She was right. Now, the color pink that she liked was closer to magenta and made her look grotesque, <laughs> but uh, it took a lot of cajoling to get her to try the pink I wanted to use because. The, the, those old broads uh, knew a lot about the theater, yes. and they knew how to make themselves look good. And I think that came from years of doing stock and yeah. touring and all of that, that if they didn't bring their gels, I know uh, Tula Bankhead used so to tour her own gel travel with her gel. for the color, so when she could play there. So um, It's a great idea. Here are my yes. gels. Yeah. 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 Here are my likes. Do you ever have a leading lady who had in her contract that every time she set foot on stage. The lighting had to increase by oh, three points. Oh, I've done that a few times. <laughs> yes. Well, that's actually been in the contract. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I, I didn't know it was in the contract. <laughs> I did works. And this it was a wonderful old English performer. Who was that? Dame Cicely Courtnage. Okay. And she had that in her contract. And in fact, the reviews said every time she sets foot on stage, the whole stage seems to light up. I don't think John Simon it's wrote like that. Oh, okay. well, I know when I, uh, I did a show with Claudette Colbert, and we were, it was a terrible play, but we were doing it, and she spent a lot of time in a wheelchair at a desk. And we walked into the theater one day, and it was always Miss Colbert and Mr. <laughs> Billington. Uh, and she came in, and she had her dresser, who had been with her for 50 years, and she came and she sat at the desk and she said, Mr. Billington, would you put the lighting as we have it when I sit at the desk? And I said, well, certainly. And I put the light cue in. And she turned to her dresser who handed her a mirror this big. And she sat at the desk and went like that. <laughs> and looked and she said, very good, Mr. Billington. And she went back to her dressing oh, room. Oh, <laughs> do, do you find costume designers that you have to cajole occasionally, and a reluctant oh. actress. Oh. What? Oh. <laughs> I have to get back from Not the last so. question I asked yeah, you. Yeah. Is that a good Cajole? one? <laughs> I wouldn't say cajole. Oof, you, you really, <laughs> that could be an entire seminar <laughs> yeah. right there. It's parenting, isn't it's it? It's nanny. No, but yeah. Well, a lot of nanny. times they have, <laughs> they have a perception of what they feel makes them look their best. Mm -hmm. And I they think that a right, then. A lot of times they are right, mm. but uh, sometimes. And then you have to listen when you, they're you wrong. You, you always have to listen. Oh, you you always have to listen <laughs> because there's something in there, even if they're wrong. But it's based on something. Mm -hmm. It's based on something, Some and you have to find something. But I think mother saying their ears were too yeah. big. Exactly. Anything. But it's at, it's at its worst when you do contemporary clothes. Yeah. 
because then personal taste comes into it. I'd never wear that. I'd never wear right. that colour. I wouldn't do this. Right. When it's a period piece, they're almost sort of willing, <coughs> they trust the designer more, Right, I because think. They, they, they think, well, you know better, so you'll make me look good anyway. Whereas when it's contemporary things, they, right. they've got far more to say, and it's exactly. much more difficult. One of your fellow designers told us that when she had people come, even the chorus girls, for a fitting, she had silk underwear for them to put on. That to make them feel that they were something very special about being in the theatre. Who was it? Was it Theoni, I think? Yeah. I think it might have been Theoni. We learned from her. I try to have them there too. Yes, they were. Yes, so want to do that. But we do it. Does it work? Of course it works. Of course it works. And you have you have apples and you know grapes and water and absolutely. I like very vulnerable, particularly at the first fittings because it's the first time that they see themselves as this character in the mirror and, um, and as the guy said is you do really have to function somewhat as a nanny as a, some sort of a yeah. guide s uh, to help them through the shock of this it's very different for dancers because most dancers right. are pretty amazing looking to begin with and they are used to being told what to do so they tend to be thrilled with no matter what you put on them and they always look great so it's that's very the yeah. there are two points of uh, one, I mean, it's not often that you're saying, hello, how are you? Take off your clothes. Well, the other thing is that when you're in a fitting, when you're dealing with, an, with the actor or the actress, they're also looking at the mirror, and, and who knows what they're looking at? I mean, they may be looking mm. at very different things. I've, mm. I've had conversations with actors in fittings about the fact that, are we talking about the actor? Or are we talking about the character? And to make, l help them make that distinction as well. I know that that's a very important thing to deal with. Yeah. I mean, as you're saying, my, my mother told me my earlobes were too yes. big or whatever, or you have to cover this up. And if you can find the thing that makes them comfortable, that's the magic moment. I remember Jacqueline Bissett on a movie we were working on saying, Everybody in Hollywood is always appalled at the size of my shoulders. What are we going to do about <coughs> my shoulders? Mm -hmm. I said, could we start out by celebrating them? Oh, she like burst into tears. Yes. <laughs> 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 That's what I would do. Yeah, uh, she, yeah. So we did. We celebrated them and we showed them off. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were really the foundation for the actors. Well, you it begins in front of the mirror in the fitting right. room, mm -hmm. in the underwear, the silk underwear. But d do you show actors sketches before they're even built? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, you oh, want yeah. their input. Oh, yes. Before, oh, but often before you, you design it, is yeah. that yeah. thing of Good actors to tend them. to be really smart about yeah. Absolutely, yeah. They They've studied the characters. The characters probably as long as you have, if not yes. longer. Right. I think the, the so most, yeah. one of the most rewarding things is I, I've, been, I've done a lot of work at the Royal Shakespeare Company where we have sometimes like an 18-week rehearsal period, which is joyous because you can, I mean, often I haven't designed the costume until halfway through that. Mm. They've been rehearsing for eight or nine weeks. They know exactly they know who they are. They mm -hmm. know that character inside out, yeah. and they help design the costume. Yeah. You know, and you get you get the best you get the best costume because mm -hmm. you're designing for that character, and they know that character rather than mm -hmm. as often happens with a short rehearsal period. The costumes have to be designed because they have to be started, and you, the actors arrive and they're presented with this thing that's half built. But and you still and exclude it never, it the actor work. at your peril. Yeah. Right. It, it doesn't. Be it doesn't work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It must be included. All right. Well, I think we're going to take a little break now and then we'll come back and uh, after everybody stretches and we'll have a few more conversation questions mm -hmm. perhaps I want to go there
This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar on these honors. Before returning to it, I would like to emphasize that even though these seminars and the annual Tony Awards given for excellence in theatre are the most visible of our activities, they are only a small part of the work we do for the community. As long-established charity, we serve both theatre and the community with our year-round programs. The Wing works to develop new audiences for theatre and for a broadening of young minds. We bring the magic of theatre to those who otherwise not know its power. Programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its 10-year history has enabled almost 100,000 high school students to come to the theatre, many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to theatre by bringing professionals into schools for workshops as a part of our theatre in school program. Additionally, with our hospital program, dating back to World War II, when the Wing created the legendary stage door canteens, we continue to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and childcare facilities in the New York area. With volunteer talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world, we bring live entertainment, hope, and joy to those who are not able to get out and attend theater. Our grants and scholarship program provides essential funding where it is so needed today to help launch new productions in the not-for-profit world. We take pride in the work we do and remain so grateful to our members and everyone whose contributions make the work of the American Theatre Wing possible. Our work strengthens the community. It strengthens the community between the theatre and the community and we are proud to be a part of this very great effort. And now I would like to go back to our moderator, Ken Chapin. Thank you. I wanted to, to start this uh, section. I don't want to pit one side against the other, but I want to ask the costume and set designers, uh, when <coughs> obviously part of what you have to deal with with the lighting designer is the expectation of illuminating that which you have designed. But what expectations do you have of a lighting designer? They better make it look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're always ruining my <coughs> color palette. <laughs> Sometimes they save the day. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> 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 the first oh, thing across the <laughs> it's the only it's the only seriously gigantic new thing that's happened to theater in God knows how many thousand years. So we should be seriously grateful for it. But the thing that surprises me is how a lighting designer, in addition to making what we do selectively visible in the way that you dream um, it might happen, is that they can also – I've seen it happen where they can literally make s chunks of a show better than they have been. There was an instance on a musical a few years ago where there was a wonderful production number that got a pretty good response every night. And then the lighting designer decided to have a go at it and 
put a series of cues in throughout the number that heightened the excitement radically, step by step through the number, until literally after he'd worked on one afternoon on this, uh, this number got a standing screaming response and was then the number that was used on the Tony Award show and was the sort of icon for and this uh, show. Tony, I do, th I do think that I know <laughs> that Ken, because Ken does this very well, <laughs> that numbers that musical numbers particularly really can be engineered. Yes. They can be mm -hmm. simply mm -hmm. engineered to deliver mm -hmm. by their lighting. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, a v it's, such a, it's, it's such a, you would think, a subtle thing for an audience to be perceiving, but it n it's not. It's a, it's a really visceral thing, mm -hmm. and it can really get your heart Absolutely, rate going. Yes. Yeah. Do choreographers have a tendency to <coughs> understand that, or do you have some, to do that? Some do and some don't. Um, you know, they always want to focus on something that maybe doesn't need to be focused on. They're, they're so worried about the handkerchief in the pocket, you know, and you make that, or not isolating enough or all that. But um, they, have very, they, they have spent so long up here and in the studio coming up with whatever that number is. Um, in the same way they work with the, uh, the orchestrator and the dance music arranger and the scenic and the costume designer, I get to it last, you know. The designers, ha the scenic and costume have <laughs> been working on it for a long time. Hmm. Not that I haven't, but all of a sudden we are now sitting in a theater and we have one hour to do a number and everyone else has spent months on it, and um, they've had six weeks in the rehearsal hall, and I now get one hour to finish the number. Um, and you hope you don't destroy the number. Uh, but many times, I will also talk to the orchestrator, because you'll say, you know, if you give me a little something here, that will motivate the light changing, or you give me a harp gliss, then I can do down with the lights. All to orchestrate this entire piece to being um, and you're interesting also uh, and helping the show work. And you're also dealing with making the costumes be what they need to be and making the scenery right. be, be look as whatever it's going to be. And it might be a very changeable kind of right. thing. It's not that it has to look good, but that it might look one thing or then another thing or then another thing, as well as the uh, musical dance beats that you're dealing with. Do you, do you actually sketch with lighting in mind? I do. do. Yeah. I do very much. Yeah. And um, I uh, taught a little bit. Last year, I assisted um, Ming Cho Lee teaching up at Yale. And, um, uh, I'm going to be doing the same thing. I'm going to be teaching this spring at NYU a bit. And it, it, with students, I'm always trying to say, you know, one thing you must be very, very, very interested in in designing your scenery is what it might look like with light and how that light's going to get yeah. to it. <laughs> because <laughs> from, where, right. from where? Because if the light can't get to it, mm -hmm. it's not going to look that, that good. That solid ceiling. It, that mm -hmm. solid mm -hmm. ceiling is not going to help you. Yeah. And the, uh, also how the space might be informed mm -hmm. by whatever kind of light. And I often do actually kind of just crummy little Quick light, light sketches, sketches yes. nothing yeah. elaborate, but little light sketches. So your, sketches your sketches have a lot of lighting. I try. Well, uh, actually, I'm the magical Ming Cho Lee, who you both mentioned, who, than whom there is nobody more wonderful, um, rather disapproves of working on black paper. But and teaches his students not to. He says it's like Elvis painting. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. But in fact, uh, you know, really what you're doing in the theater 
is you're selecting you're what it. the audience is going to see out of the darkness. Um, so I, for me, find it very often, if it's an appropriate kind of show to do that with, to start out with a dark background. Or, and e or even to light. take a sketch that you have of a, of a scene or a photograph of a model. The photo photography has gotten so slick now. I'm, I'm sure you do this all the time, yeah. that you take digitals of the model and then do stuff. Yeah. And then take a piece of trace and mm -hmm. just do little quick lighting Absolutely. sketches yeah. over mm -hmm. those photographs or yeah. those original sketches just to get a sense of what I, might happen. I like them. I love yeah. seeing what the set designer was thinking. You know, I used to work a lot with Oliver Smith, and Oliver Smith used to show all the lighting in his sketches. And I would sit there, and when he presented it to everybody, this is what it better look like, you know. <laughs> uh, and if he had the sunlight from coming from stage right, I better have the sunlight coming from stage right and not stage left. Um, I always find it helpful. I, I don't want it to totally in tell me how to design the show, but I always think a little bit of light in there is always good for everybody. It also mm. makes it a more interesting picture. And do you find more and more that you're invited to meetings with the director and designer mu at a much earlier stage than the one time you might have been? I, I, I really I enjoy it. Actually, through, it depends who you <laughs> work with. I have done mm -hmm. shows where I've been hired first. Right. Um, and then the rest of the team has been brought in. I have done a lot of shows. When I work with David Mitchell a lot, I'm there from his first meeting with everybody. See, I really value that. And I, I enjoy that and a I lot like because, that because it actually well designed a set around We're the all in it together. I always think when you walk out of the theater at the end of the evening, you should come out having said, it's a great show. Um, you shouldn't come out saying, God, the show was good, and that scenery. and the, mm -hmm. uh, You have to come out having had the perfect <laughs> theatrical experience. I, I love getting reviews. Uh, and John Simon has a paper bag over my head a few times. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I just we think, you know, <laughs> I think no review is the good review. Yeah. When they review the play and they say the play worked, I think then I did my job well. I mean, it doesn't help me in the publicity department, but it helps me as an artist think I did okay. I remember mm -hmm. as a student being constantly told by a wonderful British designer called Jocelyn Herbert, mm. who always <laughs> said, if um, the show begins if there was a curtain in, in a production. If it goes out and the audience applaud the set, you've gone too far. Yeah, right. And that was drummed into mm -hmm. us all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to ask you, William, that y in contact, there's a yellow dress. Now, I imagine that when you designed that yellow dress, you wanted it to look right. It was a different yellow when I first designed it. <laughs> well, it didn't have so <laughs> <well, laughs> yellow. Didn't it have little sparkly <laughs> things in it by the end? I had to fight back on that one. There were 13 um, yellow dresses. Nine yellow dresses, <laughs> all different shapes and sizes and all different cuts. And, and colors? And colors. So different shades of yellow? Uh, I began the process with the fabulous Deborah Yates, uh, who came from nowhere into all of our lives. And uh, I was the one who had to break the news to her that you have to wear yellow. Well, tears before bread time, you know, because she was a blonde, and mm -hmm. blondes don't normally wake up and say, I'm going to put yellow on. Because <laughs> 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 it so conflicts with the hair? Well, it bounces onto the face. The yellow is, uh, is a tricky color for, uh, for, for most And people. it was very important to the writer, the writer because and the director because it was a, 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 it was a totemic thing in their head that this girl was Where in yellow. yellow. That this character was a girl in, in yellow, yellow. This iconic So girl. that was built into it. So after the tears, I took her to Barbara Matera's and we put layer on layer of yellow <laughs> on her until she started. I watched her body language and when she finally smiled, I realized that was the right yellow. That was all very well and good. We made the first 
you know, w number one out of nine. And we took the Lois Greenfeld's uh, photographs, and it's on the buses and, you know, taxis and everything is fine. That's number then one. That's number one. But then you get on stage, and th the lighting is this close. It's right, like, what is that, nine feet, six feet, something like this? Fourteen. Well, well, in the Mitzi New House, it was only about a foot above. A there. foot above, <laughs> exactly. So a foot away is like a million megawatts of color. So, of course, that yellow became pure white in about a second. And then I had to, so, and, and you know, they wanted like that. So I, I just cut off the outer layer with scissors in the corner, more tears. <laughs> and underneath, there was a bounce layer that was a richer, deeper yellow. And she went back out, as I said, more tears, and, you know, what are you doing to me? And uh, all of a sudden, we were getting closer to the yellow instantly. Mm -hmm. And that and that proceeded, and I kept making dress after dress after diff of different yellows, because you would, it was very saturated production. And when she would go off stage and wear this yellow, it was horrifying <laughs> to her, because it was not the right color. It was only when it was on stage under those saturated light <laughs> that we got the right yellow for, the, for her complexion and for the man. The other thing with that, William, was that uh, it, it seems to me that that dress, it was a very important dress because it was a centerpiece of that show. And we worked on many things on the show and th that the girl has an incredible amount of very difficult dance to do. So that dress, the way that lighting can engineer a number, those costumes and that costume are engineered literally engineered for dance, that she can be lifted, that it can then oh, fall correctly. Oh, there's more substructure to that simple oh, boy, slip oh, dress boy, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you even want to know about. But finally, the final dress number nine, which is the one that we're still adapting actually to each actress. I, s I shift it slightly to their bodies. But I found a fabric that had uh, applicators called crinkle, crinkle, cracked ice, cracked mm -hmm. ice on a slinky jersey. And the cracked ice reflect, catches the light and sends it off. So it has more magic. Uh, it also scrapes her partners dreadfully. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to add long sleeve sh uh, shirts for several of the lifts. But, uh, <laughs> but it's wonderful for the lights. And you brought lots of material so you can keep building the dress. That's right. That's right. We have lots and lots. But there's tears from the partners because it scrapes them, you know, if they slide down their body. But now they wear long sleeve shirts when they're partnering certain moves. But uh, so that's me, uh, that was me. So not only did I create in, increase the saturation of the yellow to deal with the lighting, but I also added sparkle to the fabric to help give uh, a better palette for the light. And it's okay. just a simple yellow dress, and nothing, who would have known? Nothing. But that show is such a great collaboration with you and lighting and everything because even throughout the show, the the yellow dress becomes magic, and then, and then it goes away. And then it yeah. goes away. Mm -hmm. And that's all the lighting. And that's, yep. Yep. that's just a brilliant collaboration. So it Th comes and goes. That's great. Good we choice of. Good question. Finally. Good question. Finally. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have some questions. We'll see how good these are from the audience <laughs> now. Good afternoon. My name is Vic Spira. I'm a retired drama teacher from Queens. Uh, for, can I thank you all for making this one of the most enjoyable afternoons I've ever had in my life. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> my question is directed toward David. Uh, were the costumes in Rocky Horror Show described by the author or director, or are they yours? Um, as we've been saying, it's a collaboration, and uh, uh, Christopher Ashley, the director of the show, uh, and I worked very much on bringing the show to a modern to a modern viewpoint. Uh, the show is is not saddled, but also brings with it 
what everyone's imagination of Rocky is from the movie that everyone has seen 20,000 times. And so we wanted to respect that and bring part of that to it. Uh, but more it was about taking the, the germ, the, the seed of that, and bringing it forward and bringing it into the modern day. David, I, I wanted to ask also, the set designer was, was David Rockwell, uh -huh. who I don't believe had ever designed a set before. He's a wonderful d interior d designer. Yeah. Yes. Did he have specific ideas about the costumes, or was he? Um, no, actually not. I mean, it was um, very much he's, he was creating the environment and did brilliant work, I think, on, on making that um, more space. than theater. It's just, I mean, it's, <coughs> it's a space. It's a ride that you're going on in, in, that, in that piece. And uh, that's why the whole thing flips over, the stage flips over. But as far as, as getting into the... Uh, the world of it, I mean, he is establishing the, the world of the red that, that we're using in that show and uh, several of the hmm. qualities of the blackness and, and where that world is sitting and, and how, the se how the people will be seen on it. But as far as, oh, well, um, I think that the lab should all be set up this way and you should be doing this with the, the costumes, that was not really what David was interested in. Okay. Another question? Hi, my name is Kim Corbett. And this audience question is, when doing a Broadway show, when are you hired and by whom? Name anyone. It can be the director who wants, the general manager calls up and negotiates your money. But it could be the director who would like you. It could be the scenic designer. It could be the producer. It could be the general manager. It could be the author who has a relationship with you, that you're part of a team. Um, we all have directors uh, and designers we work with all the time. We change, but that happens a lot. Uh, and that's how you get, th get the job. And then once you're there, it, the money part of it is handled by uh, the general manager and your agent or attorney. The, uh, and you're hired. So I've been hired three weeks in advance, and I've been hired three years in advance. Mm -hmm. And you are, you are essentially hired by the producer. The, it's the producer <laughs> who's doing the hiring. Even but but <laughs> that's it's the director. But it's the director. Let's all make this very clear. There is only one boss in the Broadway theater. When you're world, working on the stage, it is right. the director. Right. The film is different. It's the producer there, but. Right. Broadway, it's the director, and you stray at your peril. But when you, <laughs> when you have a costume design that you give to your director, and it's going to be very expensive to make and doesn't fit into the budget, who oh, tells tish, you? Tish. <laughs> 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 You're not going to make the poor manager. Uh, so easily said. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing well with you, William. <laughs> Yes, next question. Hi, my name is Melanie Smock, and my colleagues Kim Corbett and Ken Armour and I have kind of a group question for the entire panel, which is, do any of you need an assistant? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, actually the assistant question, if I, I could jump in on that. I worked out of, after school, I worked as an assistant for a few years to various people, um, uh, including Santo and including Robin Wagner. And it was a, it's a very, working as an assistant is a very different experience than being in school. And it's a hugely beneficial training experience, I think. You learn, you, it's the first time that you're around uh, shows with big resources. And um, you learn 
how those shows get done, and you learn what becomes important and what isn't important, whereas uh, how a molding on the edge of a table might be very, very, very important uh, in a small off-Broadway house or a regional theater where you're right up close to a stage. That's not going to be important when you have $500,000 worth of scenery moving around so fast you can't even see the table come and go. <laughs> it's more important about getting the stuff to move. Uh, and these are things you don't learn really till you're out of school and working as an assistant. So uh, I think all of us always need assistance. I, I think we could all say yes on that one. Yeah. I would add it. How do you get to be an assistant? Well, uh, is it Kim? Is that right? 22, actually. Melanie, Melanie sorry. Uh, yeah, really. You, to be an assistant, I think you just call. I remember I called Resident. Robin over yeah. and over and over, and finally he just gave in. And he said, oh, okay. God, people with letters <laughs> and phone calls. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the intern system, if they're free, that's the best. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you see if it works, and then you Yeah, an intern them. for the summer, an intern on that's a show, if you figure out how to do it. How do you get that? Uh, I get two or three resumes a day, and I talk to everybody. And sometimes uh, I like the person or whatever. They have something they can give me. Or it happens to be they got to my office the day I need somebody. Yeah, yeah sometimes. Yeah. Uh, often it is literally that. Right. But sending a resume to you. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. but are, are, are we assuming that these are people who have been to school, to drama school? Some have, some yes. have. Yeah. Not always. Have Last year I had a I'm trying to save you guys from a lot yeah. of resumes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's it, how I started. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it is not it's always democracy. It, it, sometimes, it, sometimes it's been three years worth of graduate school, and those are the people you're seeing. And sometimes not. And it it, it depends. Skill okay. levels can I, come from anywhere. I didn't go to school. I didn't go to college. I went from high school to being an assistant on Broadway. How I did that, God only knows. But I avoided that six years of uh, spending a lot of money at school. So I learned by working on 30 Broadway shows as an assistant. And I... There's, wow. no, there's nothing like that. You know, no. best. Nothing, nothing like the best learning curve. The hands-on. But yeah. now, is there a school for lighting designers? Sure. Uh, there's a, a great number. Yeah. Yale, uh, Carnegie Mellon, NYU, um, uh, UCLA, Northwestern. Um, Northwestern is very good for lighting. Yeah. That really, they have facilities and they... Um, they teach that and they put and they allow together. and they allow the students I think importantly in those schools and many others that you just mentioned they they allow the students to be working with directors and with actors and with uh, set designers or costume designers or vice versa on stage finally working on a production and that's very valuable as a student to be able to <coughs> have work realized. Right. It's, it, that's a quite a valuable thing. Now, you know, often they just do it in a studio, you know, they sit and they draw the pretty pictures and say, I'm going to light it this way, but they never get to turn a light on right. the red dress or the yellow dress to see what the light really will do to the red dress or the yellow dress or the green dress in the environment that's been created for the play. And schools that permit you to do that are really great. And one, one more question. Uh, my name is Kenneth Armour and this question is directed to everyone. How do you manage to create sets and lighting to work in multiple theaters for a road tour? With great difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> Very hard. Yeah. You need assistance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier if it is a show that has been playing that is an established New York show 
then you, everyone knows what the what needs the are exactly. Yeah. And then you can pare it down to go on the road. It's when you are going the other route, you're mm -hmm. touring and then coming in. Yeah. The thing to know about the road, 29 feet of depth is it. If you want a road show. You have to go for the worst case theater depth. Most mm -hmm. of them are many, many times larger than that. But you have to go for the worst one. And in fact, most Broadway houses 29 or 30 feet of depth is about what we've got. Yeah. So often the road houses, funnily enough, are bigger than the Broadway houses, mm -hmm. but you do have to go for a minimum. Oh, you're so spoiled out of town. Exactly. Well, I always say the St. James Theater, which I believe is 28 feet 6 inches. Mm -hmm. Where the producers and, and the, is playing where the producers, right now. But where the biggest musicals in the history of the theater have played yeah. Yeah. In, in 29 feet of depth, which some people have bigger living rooms. Uh, but one of the, the real problems with that, um, trying to make it work for a number of out-of-town theaters, is if you're starting out at a gigantic theater, a show that I was working on not long ago was to start out at the Dallas um, Music Fair, which I think is a 5,000, 6,000-seat theater, mm. and was going to end via various other stops at a conventional Broadway stage. It's not just a design problem. It's a problem of how are you going to be arresting to 6,000 people? How broad are your gestures going to be? How loud is the sound going to have to be? And is that going to make a different show when you're actually creating the show first time out? And how hard is it going to be to bring that down to the size, that it, the more intimate show that it needs to be in a more conventional Broadway musical. Whereas house. if it starts in that conventional house and then lands yeah. unhappily for two weeks in the 5,000-seat house, you think, well, I'm glad I'm not there for those two weeks. <laughs> and then it moves on yeah. Well, I always think the people that else. see the show in the 5,000-seat theater are used to seeing shows in the 5,000-seat theater. True. So they don't know about the... But it isn't just about the audience. Yeah. It's about the show you make because sure. you make the show for the audience you've got. And I, I worked on a show, um, a Tommy Toon musical that didn't arrive in New York because he broke his ankle, but uh, it got seriously damaged by playing very large. Our it was an intimate is. show, mm. and it started out in an the intimate theater, was and that it went bigger and bigger and bigger, and, bigger, and, bigger mm -hmm. and it just destroyed its essential nature. And it's a very tricky thing. Uh, I've had, the, I've had <coughs> a similar problem, but in reverse, because I'm doing a show here which originated in London, and we brought it over to Broadway, and it was designed for a very large theater. Uh, it was at the National Theatre. And then it went from there into the West End where we had to reduce it. And now bringing <coughs> it over here, we've <coughs> had to reduce it even more because of the depth thing. Mm -hmm. And we needed twice the depth that we've actually got. But everyone said to me, but the show's got to be exactly the same. We <laughs> 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 don't want to change it. And we've, we've hung on <coughs> to that. But interestingly, I had to break the proscenium line. So we built out through the proscenium. We took away two rows of seat mm. with huge arguments with producers, but oh we yes. won that battle. But ironically, the show is now better than it's ever been because mm. it's in the audience's face. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's one example when it's worked in our favor. Mm. And that's rare, but it has. That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think it's time to wrap this up. We could go on all afternoon, but I'd uh, like well, to I thank the panel. More questions <laughs> <to ask. laughs> well, you have to, you have to wait till next time. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'd like to thank the panel very much. Thanks and thank so you much. all for, for being here. This is the American Theatre Wing <laughs> Seminars, Working in the Theatre. This is on Designers. <laughs>